you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks episode number 223. This week on our panel, we have Erica Sadoon. Hello from Denver. James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City, and this week we have a special guest, Stephen Solis. Stephen, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Stephen Solis, and I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I was working at Kickstarter for the past uh, couple of years, and I helped build and open source their iOS app. And now I'm off to a new thing. Uh, I'm working on Point Free, which is a uh, upcoming video series on Swift and functional programming. Very cool. So I, I, I think there's uh, two things that I'd really like to ask, um, kind of cover. And, and the the first is your time at Kickstarter. I think something that's really interesting about what you did there is that the Kickstarter apps are actually open source, which is maybe not common. Not most companies don't open source their apps. So I kind of wonder what uh, you know what started that. What was the motivation for open sourcing them? How did that work company, you know, throughout the company? Was it controversial or something you had a lot of support for? Uh, we were pretty lucky um, and got a lot of support early on. Some of the uh, more kind of like agnostic backend server code uh, had been open sourced in the past, kind of reusable libraries. And when Kickstarter became a public beneficiary corp, there was a charter kind of lot of things that they want to do to give back to the community at large. And uh, a couple of my colleagues were talking about how open sourcing the full kind of like client apps for, for the mobile, um, both Android and iOS would be a, a good way to kind of give back to the community, share what we were doing internally and, you know, hope, hope that people could, you know, learn from it and maybe steal some of the ideas. Do you think that was successful? I mean, do you think it did actually benefit the the wider community? I I do. I, I'd like to think so. Um, we definitely were getting a lot of kind of personal emails, but also like GitHub issues on the repository, just asking questions about architecture, uh, some of the decisions we made. We are definitely not a traditionally architected app. Uh, it, there's a lot of functional reactive programming and it's done in a very specific way, but in the style that we adopted, uh, we found a lot of benefits in things like testability and, uh, just in general, we, you know, had very low error rates, very low exception reporting, 
And people who have kind of followed our footsteps and tried out some of these ideas have generally had a very positive experience. It seems that right now we're sort of at a point of a language renaissance where we're seeing a lot of old ideas like functional program and newer ideas like reactive programming, as well as you mentioned point-free programming, come into the language domain. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, yeah. I think you bring up a great point about how these are kind of old ideas, um, and they really are kind of coming into the mainstream just recently. I think we're seeing a lot of it outside of iOS um, development, especially in like JavaScript land. We have React, and we have a lot of interesting new languages getting created that compile to JavaScript, like PureScript. And uh, a lot of these new languages and uh, patterns are based off of old patterns that, you know, maybe there's a paper written about it back in the 70s or, or 80s. Or if you take Lambda Calculus, which is the basis of functional programming, right. it's Alonzo Church, right, in the 30s? Yeah. Yeah, it goes, it goes back a long time. Uh, and it's really interested me recently. Um, I, I got started doing uh, Rails programming uh, with Ruby, uh, as far as professional goes. And back then, I you know, was enjoying the use of things like math and reduce or they call it inject. Uh, but I think that that kind of descriptive declarative stuff is just kind of the, you know, the surface. And there are a lot of interesting concepts in functional programming that are more about just the way we think as human beings, uh, describing things in, in a mathematical way, but not necessarily a scary math way. I, I do think that there's something about how humans invented this language for math that, that carries into uh, software engineering pretty pretty well. So where are you at right now in terms of picking languages, using languages? What languages are your life? Uh, my life is revolving around Swift, uh, just because that's what kind of, you know, it pays the bills. Uh, it's a really interesting place to be right now. The language is changing so quickly and it's really servicing some very interesting, uh, just programming language, uh, research. So I follow a lot of the sort of compiler engineers on Twitter and they are always discussing very interesting concepts. And I think Swift was kind of the, the gateway language for me to explore uh, things like functional programming more deeply and more programming language theory. So I had done very basic uh, exploration of things like Haskell in the past, but without a real project, it's kind of hard to get too deep into it. And more recently, I have been doing some uh, web development as well. Uh, at, at Kickstarter, it was kind of split between mobile and backend and, and front-end web. So I had the opportunity to explore some of the, these newer languages like Elm and PureScript and, and really play around with them. And it's interesting to see what features these languages offer that don't quite work in Swift right now. But you could also, you know, have discussions with the compiler engineers like Joe Groff and Jordan Rose about how they might work these more expressive kind of 
experimental features into Swift in the future. So what type of features are we talking about? Uh, a lot of it is more advanced, like, type system stuff. So in, in Haskell, there's a, a concept called higher-kinded types. Um, and that basically allows you to describe uh, types based off of their constructors. So right now in Swift, when you, you know, you extend uh, a structure, a class, you can't bring in, uh, like, just things that depend on the construction of the, the, the kind. So in Haskell, a kind is just any flat type, like, you know, uh, where you just refer to the type concretely. As soon as you add these generic parameters, like in Swift, we have arrays that have elements. Uh, you can only go that one layer deep. You can't write, for example, a map on sequence that returns a, the same sequence. Uh, all of the map and reduce and like functional operators in Swift usually end up returning an array just because that is the lowest common denominator that it, it knows is going to be a sequence and it's a sequence that we are all comfortable kind of manipulating and using. So what are some examples of things that you could return from a map that aren't in arrays? Right. So ideally, map you could define just once. Um, we have it defined a, a few times in, in Swift. Uh, we have it defined on sequence, and we also have it defined on optional. And so the idea is that you can map, you know, over this container type and manipulate the value without referencing the container itself. In a language that supports higher kind of types, map would be able to work where it knows that it, how to always return the, the container that it started with. So if you map a dictionary in Swift, you get an array back. If you map a set, you get an array back. But if we had higher kind of types, we would be able to write map just once and have it work so that if you map over, uh, I guess for a dictionary, you would have to just map over its values because if you transform the key and have a collision, it doesn't play nicely. Like you might get a different size container at the end. But, you know, optional map would come kind of for free. Uh, if you are thinking about some of these uh, libraries like Promises and, and Futures, those are all these containers that will eventually return a value. And the same way that you can map an optional into another shape or map the elements of an array into a new shape, you can map the element that lives inside a future or even a signal, like in reactive programming, uh, to transform it. I did a quick search through the standard library, and right now I count 13 different map functions, and of them, I think seven of them return arrays. That makes sense. Okay. What do the other ones do? Return. Um, one returns a dictionary, the rest return lazy sequences. So it's a bit of a mess. So if you could apply higher kind of types, how would that clean up? So with higher kind of types, you can kind of forget that this this thing is a specific container. You you can think of it as just something that holds on to a value that you're going to need in in some way or capacity later. And 
when you start diving into functional programming and functional style, you start using these operators more and more. And they're very, they're very basic. You know, a map is really just this function that goes from A to B, and then it takes a container of A's and returns a container of, of B. Um, so with something that is such a small kind of Lego brick, you can write a lot of functions using things like map and, and flat map. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the chaining operators that we use on array, like filter can be built from these smaller components. So if you can describe things to the language in higher kind of types, you could write some of these more higher level operations and reuse them all over the place. Um, right now, if we want to do that, we generally have to redefine the function every time. And it's not a huge deal. It's a little bit of boilerplate. I, I do think in the end, the concepts are more important than being able to save a few lines of code. But, you know, it would be nice for the language to be able to provide that kind of power because I, I think being able to reuse uh, abstractions is, is a very powerful concept in general. Now, so far you've mentioned quite a bit about the technologies that are now inhabiting the modern languages. Could you kind of go sideways a little and talk about some of the processes that people use to construct their applications and what's changed over the last few years and what have come into importance? Yeah, I think when you look again, I mean, you can also look a bit sideways to just the front end web community because I do think they are kind of moving the, the fastest right now. Um, it's just a, a huge domain and area. So there's a, a, there are a lot of people operating in it and there are a lot of people kind of experimenting on the perimeter of it. And you also have kind of these big companies like Facebook that are, you know, in the open kind of paving the way with interesting libraries um, and, and paradigms kind of like React. And in iOS, we are in a more kind of closed ecosystem, uh, especially with things like uh, UIKit being really, you know, the main option. And I think as a community, we also are a bit reticent to adopt these uh, technologies that aren't, uh, you know, signed by Apple. So even though I think there are a lot of people experimenting th with things like React Native, it's still kind of fringe. And I I've seen it be a lot more common for people to write wrappers around UIKit where they might be able to do kind of like the same kind of view declarative uh, coding where, where you just describe what the UI kit tree should look like and you pass it data. And then there's some kind of interpreter that behind the scenes, when it gets new data, knows how to, to diff that tree and render the updated state. Um, and, and there are a few libraries out there that have come out over the past few years. I, I don't know if they're all still maintained, but there's definitely the interest there in, in being able to be more declarative, I think, in general. Just kind of describing that given this app state, this is what it should look like, um, rather than the more traditional, you know, mutate the view directly in this callback or in this notification or in this target action. There, there are so many different patterns that ship with 
you know, Cocoa and Cocoa Touch that you can pick and choose. But in the end, you know, it can be tough to follow exactly how the view got to a certain point when you're mutating state over time. A lot of this was really popular in the early 90s. Do you remember um, the, the, the fad of programming by contract? I am I'm somewhat familiar with the concepts. Um, it was mostly Eiffel and I forget Bertrand somebody or somebody Bertrand. I, I forget the details, but I see this notion of declarative state coming back into vogue and finally being realized. And it's a really exciting development, I think. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree. Um, I, I think even something like reactive programming wasn't really taken seriously as, as something that you could do. Um, you know, that there are people who have kind of called it fantasy land, playtime, that kind of thing. But we're at the point, I think, where you can build big applications and describe all of the logic as just these kinds of streams of, of inputs that kind of accumulate over time into, into this app state. And I, I found that really powerful just in, I guess, answering some of the questions that I would have normally had about how do I design this application? Um, we have so many design patterns that we've been coming up with as an industry over the past few decades. Um, you know, the gang of four, a lot of object oriented, like focused design patterns as well. And I, I found it a lot more powerful and, and easier to kind of reason about when you design based off of just user inputs and, and outputs, you know, all programming is inputs and outputs. So. Sometimes if you just state it as like input driven development rather than some of the other driven developments that we've had over the, the years, uh, it, it makes it easier. And, and you can kind of move all your business logic into this safe, pure like area where, you know, you don't have to worry about the side effects, the exceptions, the errors. Um, and then as long as you are pushing the inputs from the, the APIs that Apple provides you. Uh, it's just kind of like one line of code. And if you look through the Kickstarter code base, you can kind of see this everywhere. Uh, most of the logic that we have is in this kind of view model layer. It's not really view models in the way that I think people traditionally think of view models. Uh, it's really just a, each view model is just a function that takes signal inputs and provides signal outputs. Now, in addition to ensuring that you have a good idea of valid input and output and, you know, this whole process, there's kind of an orthogonal component, which is testing, which is the big new engineering must-have as well, right? Yeah. I, I think when you start really thinking about side effects. Um, that's, that's when you can kind of start seeing what goes into writing a test. Um, I think testing can be daunting. I, I think we are also kind of in a community where 
we we have a language that is you know pretty pretty flexible even objective c was very flexible with the way that uh it handled id and everything but uh we consider that if it builds it probably works and i i think that that's some, something we can tell ourselves but it rarely really works that way in practice and even if the app runs and doesn't crash, it doesn't mean that the actual business logic is right. But we're living in this domain of, of side effects. Uh, things like a function that you write that needs to know what the current time is. That is immediately going to be 100 times harder to test if you're just calling like the date constructor inside of it. Um, so a lot of the time when you start decomposing the problem, you think, okay, well, this side effect is really kind of a hidden input to the function. So you can just make it explicit and you add that date as a function input. Um, same is true if you are dealing with any kind of random number. Uh, you're going to want to send the, the random seed through that function if you want to be able to make it testable. Um, the easiest way to test a function is just to assert that given an input, it produces an output. But when you have all these hidden inputs... Um, and when you have hidden outputs as well, like, you know, you don't know if this function is going to make a network request or write something to disk, delete a file. And if it's doing that, it makes it a lot harder to test because it's changing the state of the world or the state of your device. And that can make it tough to test. It can make the tests work in unexpected ways. So a lot of the time, the way to, to simplify this is to try to write business logic in a way that doesn't change the world and that doesn't have dependencies where it reaches out into the world for information. And I think it's really daunting to, to kind of just go into the world where, you know, is it practical to, to write code like that? It, it seems like a lot more boilerplate sometimes. It, it seems like maybe the few lines of code that are doing a lot to the world are, are okay. But, you know, if you have a mission critical app or if you just want to provide a good user experience, I think user experience depends on being operational. And I, I think it's in our best interest and in our users' best interest that we, we test the, the code that we write. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at leno.com slash ifreaks. So if I, if I understand this correctly, you're saying, just calling like a, a function that turns to date, like we do all the time. This is a hidden input in your function, and it makes it hard to test. Right. So 
And to get around this, like how would you how would you change your code? You're not doing it that way. So yeah, the, the first way would be, you know, where the business logic actually is. Say you're dealing with like a date interval formatter or some kind of date formatter. Um, and that formatter is in this function that relies on the current date rather than just like, you wouldn't be able to test that alone because every time you run the test, the date's going to be different. It's going to print out a different value. So instead you can kind of write the function where one of the actual explicit inputs is the, the date. And you could even use like a default where it uses the date constructor so that you don't actually need to pass it in every time. It kind of gets injected as a de- dependency of the function. And then in your tests, you can send it a, an explicit date that doesn't change so that every time the test runs, it will be able to pass because that data is not changing. Okay, so if I'm just doing something, I'm creating an event, creating a model I'm going to post up to the service, and normally you call, you get the date in there. Um, for your, the code that's going to be tested, like you're not called date within the, the actual code, you're going to call the calling person's responsible for calling that or setting up a default like that. Right. And in a function, you would just instantiate like a very specific date. So you could use, you know, the Unix epoch time, that kind of thing. And then in your actual application, it'll be a little simpler because you just uh, let the, the default value kind of go through. And I think that would be, that's kind of the most basic way of making some of this code testable. And you can see it everywhere, you know, when you do a network request and you get the data back, you probably want to immediately send that data to a pure function that is easier to test because actually testing the network request and mocking it out and stubbing everything is going to be just a lot more work and a lot harder to test. For people who are new to testing, a lot of what we've discussed so far just might not really relate to their day-to-day needs. So could you step back a little bit and just talk about testing from a more general viewpoint? Who does testing? How is testing done? What is it as part of the development process? Yeah. So I think we're all kind of responsible for testing. And, and we, we all test whether we think of it as testing or not, a lot of the time it's manual testing. So you build a feature, you spin up your simulator, and you just verify that it works. Um, when you do it this way, of course, it doesn't scale very well. Um, you know, you have to wait for Xcode to build a project. You might have to click through to get to a specific screen. So, you know, as engineers, we like automating stuff. So I think one of the easiest ways to automate these days is probably using um, Apple's UI uh, testing because you can actually kind of just record these flows and, you know, write these assertions against what should happen. Uh, And I think the, the UI test will actually fail if it just can't even tap on a button because the button doesn't exist, something like that. So we do have these really cheap ways of generating automated tests, but UI testing in particular, it's a bit more finicky. It, it can fail just because there might be latency with the simulator. And I think when people build up 
test suites where it's just UI testing, it, it slows them down and they end up, you know, maybe resenting tests. Um, and I think it's better to have a healthy relationship with testing. And it can take a while to build up like a confidence in the ability to, to know how to write testable code and, and writing those tests themselves and making sure that they stay quick and, and fast and are actually catching bugs or preventing regressions. Um, but yeah, I think it, it takes a while to figure out how to do that. And some of it is just figuring out how to write your application where you can write these unit tests where you're just testing business logic where, you know, a function takes input and produces output. And you don't have to worry as much about, well, what about UI kit? Uh, what about my view controller? How do I instantiate this view controller outside of my app's lifecycle and actually test some logic contained within it? Sometimes it's easier to just extract that kind of messy logic from the view controller into just, you know, a function that lives somewhere else. And it, it doesn't have access to the, the UI kit world. So, for example, you'd, you'd create a lot of the, the code that you'd run in a view controller in a different class that, say, the view controller would call. And this is the other class would be something you could write tests for easy, easier. Right. And I think that's what a lot of the kind of these patterns that people are experimenting with these days uh, accomplishes. There, there's like MVVM, there's uh, M- MVP, there's even the kind of like Redux style um, that's that's taking a hold lately. And that's just about moving basically all of the business logic that you would normally write in your view controller and push it into this this other object that is easier to instantiate in its own right. Um, and, and that way you can write these tests without having to worry about some of the, the scarier, more side effecty like worlds that exist. Uh, definitely. I mean, the more you can get code separated from things that are happening to it, uh, from the system, the easier it is to write tests. Yeah, definitely. Uh, does the Kickstarter app have this type of, these tests run where you're extracting um, functionality from the, the service or the base level things like UI get? Yeah, there are, there are a few different patterns that we kind of experiment with. And uh, the way that the code becomes testable required a few things. Um, one of the main things that we came up with is this concept of an app environment. And what that is, is it's, kind of this singleton like object that contains all of the singletons. So, you know, instead of calling date uh, dot init for the current date, um, and even instead of having every function that needs a date to kind of stub that out, we actually have this app environment where you can swap the date provider out. So by default in the production app, the date provider is just the the date initializer function. But in our tests, it's stubbed out with a function that just returns a very specific date. And you can swap out dependencies as you go in tests to kind of tick time ahead. Uh, our API service was another one of these kinds of singletons that lives on this singleton. So we can just mock out new API-like responses in our tests. And so all of these side effects kind of live in one place. All these 
things that would be much more difficult to test um, and where we might have to mock them out individually. It's all centralized in one, one area. And that works really great in practice. The other main thing that we did was we pushed all of our business logic into the signal chains. So if you look at any view controller in the Kickstarter app, generally what you're going to see is there's the IB action, which gets a button tap, and it immediately just sends an input signal to the, the view model, the signal chain. And so that's it. Like there's no actual logic. It's, it's kind of like a logicless view controller. And so really what, what you end up seeing is that our view models at Kickstarter just basically listed out all of it, all of the potential inputs. And then it would list all of the potential mutable state as outputs. And what's really interesting about that is you start seeing that, you know, delegate method callbacks, uh, a lot of these lifecycle hooks, like view did load, view will appear. These are all kinds of hidden user inputs. Like these fire because of a user action. And so as soon as you start depending on these different things, um, in the actual mutable world of whatever state is shown to the user, you just need to, to feed it into this area that you can write tests for. And so if you look at the tests, they end up using this, uh, kind of um, test interpreter for for signals. So we have this view model that we can instantiate with like a test observer. And every time we send an input to that view model, the test observers have basically a history of the state over time. So we end up being able to test that, okay, view did load happened. Okay, then the user tapped on the search field. Okay, then the search text changed. And then you can assert that the, the entire history, basically, of, you know, what this filtered list might look like. Um, and you get to test things that I think people don't typically have rigorous test coverage for. A, a lot of businesses have apps where they really depend on, you know, event tracking data. But I don't think people generally test things like event tracking data. We, we're able to basically have this mock track, tracking client. And at the end of any of our tests, we can assert that all of the events that, you know, we are interested in knowing about were actually tracked. And, you know, you, you can deliver, you know, a better experience to the end user when you can make assertions that everything happened as expected. So it's almost like writing a script. You write a script of what the user is doing. And you can very quickly see what happened. And all of this lives without like any actual view controller logic. There's a, a an episode of uh on Chris and Florian's uh script talk where one of my colleagues, Lisa, uh she basically walks through writing a feature by writing the tests first using these kinds of uh test observers. And then at the very end, she just plugs it into a view controller, basically connecting wires. And everything just kind of works. And it's kind of amazing that you can do test-driven development in this style where you write the tests, they fail, then you write the business logic, the tests pass, and then you just have a bunch of one 
liners to add to the view controller to hook everything up. No, definitely. You can develop for iOS in a, in a TDD style. It, you probably have to do everything at TDD, like animations and stuff like that, if you're trying to get something right. That's hard to write a test up front for, but a lot of stuff you can, especially when you're implementing business logic and things that are going to happen uh, during view load, that kind of thing. Yep. So what? So most developers here, most of our listeners are used to, you know, muted load, view will appear, we just throw code in there because that's um, the state of the, the view life cycle. Like, how does that translate into a test if we wanted to do some function in in view will appear? Like, how does that, how would you write a test around that? Yeah, so you would basically kind of push that logic out outside. So depending on what pattern you're following, if you were doing like functional reactive programming, you would just have a viewed load input signal. And then all of the business logic that you might have in the view controller before moves over and is kind of the result of getting that input in the signal chain. If you're doing a more uh, like view model kind of way or even Redux kind of way, you describe these actions as kind of like an explicit enumeration. So you might have an enum of this search screen actions. And if you need to do any logic in view to load, you would just add an action, you know, a case view to load. And when view to load actually runs in the view controller, the one line of code that it would have is to dispatch that view to load action to this, uh, you know, store, I guess, or view model that is responsible for acting on that action and, and changing its state somehow. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Chris Idoff's done a, a bunch of blog posts on this, and I think there are some strip talk episodes about them as well. I, I think it's really powerful to, to see the code get built up over time and some of the refactorings that, that happen uh, as well. So I can I can get a few links for the the show notes. Definitely drop it in the in the the chat. We'll get it in the show notes. Cool. So, tell us can or actually can you tell us about your new project? Yeah, yeah. So, Point Free is the name of the the series. It also refers to kind of a functional programming style. Um, of, of programming where uh, basically you're you're not referring to the points that exist in a, a, in a function. So a lot of the time, I think when we are writing like dot map on array, etc., we just pass a closure explicitly, and we might say, you know, uh, you have an array of strings, and you dot map, and you say string in, and then you use that string. So that's actually called a point. And it's it's referring to the value that is being used in the function. Meanwhile, you could extract that closure into a function. Uh, you could have a function that takes in a string and returns an uppercase version of it. And that function could just be called uppercase. So point free would just be the, be the ability to call dot map uppercase. And then you would have the uppercase version of the string. Uh, 
and that, that's a very long winded way of saying that that's the company name. We're going to be dealing with a lot of kind of functional programming concepts, but within the realm of Swift. And the main idea is we want to kind of make functional programming practical and approachable and something that, you know, you might want to use in your day to day life. And so it's going to be a weekly video series. Uh, every week we're going to dive into a, a concept generally in the world of functional programming. And at, after we introduce it, because these concepts are usually abstract, we're going to do it with, uh, like hopefully good real world examples and then zoom out and say, what's the point? You know, it, is this concept worth the abstraction? Uh, is it something that we can benefit using day to day? And hopefully the answer is going to generally be yes, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just going to be a, a fun way for me and my colleague, um, Brandon Williams to, to explore these ideas and kind of share them. So it's at, uh, www.pointfree.co if you want to sign up and get an email when it's released. Very cool. Is there anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? Uh, do you, you all have any other questions <laughs> or anything that you want to talk about? I put a few more ideas in kind of the, the Google Doc, some more advanced, but also kind of like kind of simple or nice testing things. So some of like the, the snapshot testing stuff might be fun to cover. I don't know if we have time this time, but I know I would love to get you back and talk more. Yeah, I know. Sure. I know James has to go and we're, we're running up against our sort of usual episode time anyway. Um, but I would love to have you back to talk about that stuff. It would be great. Because this has been totally cool. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, with that, we should get to our picks. For you, the listeners of The iFreak Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Uh, Erica, do you have any picks for us? Today I have an anti-pick. This is the first time I've done an anti-pick, but I do want to take Apple to task. They removed the network utility thing that used to be in core services. That was just such a beautiful presentation of how your computer was connected to the internet and where it was breaking down. It was a wonderful diagnostic tool and it's gone in high Sierra. There are some people online who have come up with instructions from restoring it from Sierra, but it is not clean. It's not easy. And I just want to ding Apple, bad Apple. Yeah, that's frustrating. Probably the guy who was maintaining it quit or something. Okay, James, do you have any picks for us? Sure. I'm going to go with one pick. 
And we talked a little bit about uh, getting started with testing, and Stephen pointed some some actually very valid approaches for extracting yourself from the UI stuff. I did a talk a couple of years ago at AltConf. That's online. You can watch the video, and it's all about getting started uh, writing unit tests in Swift. It's a different approach than what Stephen talked about. A lot of what I'm doing is just testing the code as it is, actually testing view controllers and the code around it. But if you're having trouble getting the first step, your first test written, uh, it's a good re- resource uh, based on my experience writing tests um, for production apps. So I'll put that link in the show notes. It's, it is the Stylish Developer's Guide to Unit Testing in Swift. And that is my pick. Cool. Well, I have two picks today. My first pick is a game uh, called City Skylines. It's not a new game, but it's basically um, SimCity 5, except not, except it doesn't suck. Uh, the, it's just some developers that saw the relative failure of the last SimCity game, and so they sort of made their own, and it's actually really good. So uh, it's on Steam. I got it on sale for $7.50 on Cyber Monday, and it's been a lot of fun. It's the first game I've really sat down and played for any period of time in quite a while. And my second pick is a website called adventofcode.com. It's uh, it's an advent calendar where every day is a code challenge. They're pretty small and short. Um, they vary a little, but I don't think I've spent more than maybe 15 minutes on any day. And you can write in any language you want. Um, I've been doing them mostly in Python and using Swift for some of them too. And uh, there's leaderboards. You can create private leaderboards. So we have one with a group of friends where we're kind of in a I'm pretty sure last year, Sebastian and I were doing that. Yeah, it's been fun so far. And we discuss our solutions and stuff every day. So uh, worth checking out. Those are my picks. <laughs> Steven, do you want to mention who Sebastian is? Uh, yeah, Sebastian is uh, my brother. And <laughs> turns out that we are a family of, of software engineers, so both both of my brothers ended up uh, working in, in software. Wait, I know Sebastian. He lives in Minneapolis. Yep. Oh, very cool. And he's over at BuzzFeed these days. Yeah, I worked with Sebastian briefly. Cool. All right, well, Stephen, that's a, that's a fun little small world thing. Um, do, you have yeah. any, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, uh, I have a pick that actually kind of fits in nicely with the whole advent of code. Um, and that's the, the Pure Scripts by Example book. It's uh, free to read online. Uh, I think it unlocks a bunch of interesting language concepts that I wasn't aware of as you know a Swift engineer or even Ruby engineer before that. And it really can, I, I don't know, like unlock these ideas uh that kind of blow my mind. And so I, I think things like Advent of Code are, are great because you can kind of experiment and explore a, a new language uh, at the same time as you solve these these problems and puzzles. So I'd recommend Pure Scripts as, as a, a fun way to kind of approach some of these. Uh, yeah, I really like that idea too because the, the small little puzzles give you something that's pretty digestible to work on when learning a new language without having to you know be overwhelmed, but also give you something to consistently practice with. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, thanks again, Stephen, for coming on, and uh, thanks, everybody, for a great show. I think that's it, and we'll see you all next week. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.